Welcome to Coopercast episode 89. This is your host, Al's clutch pedal, John Sachs. This is the Nashville episode, where Al moves to the country music capital to get out of L.A. until Nashville starts to be too much like L.A. So, Al, according to this book of yours, you ended up in Nashville around 1990. Must be true, though. What, uh... What was going, what was your thinking about moving to Nashville? I liked it. Yeah. You'd been there a lot. Yeah, I liked it. And um, I had friends there. Yeah. And I just liked it. And I, I thankfully found a uh, a wonderful house. Mm. And I moved in. Now, Nashville, of course, is a very big deal music town. Was it? relentlessly a country music town or not just country? Primarily country. Which is not your main thing. I didn't go there for country music. <laughs> right, right. But you went there anyway. Yeah, I had a lot of friends there mm. that weren't necessarily country people, uh, most notably Adrian Ballou. Mm. Country definitely seems to dominate Nashville. Yeah, I mean, I wasn't interested in that at all. Right. I liked the people that I knew there. Yeah. And certainly, Adrian Blue had less to do with country music than I did. Really? Okay. Well, King Crimson and his yeah, career. Yeah, what does that have to do with country music? Plus, he's English. How did he end up there, you think? I don't know, but it was a smart move. Both yeah. of us. Yeah. One of the reasons we got along. Of course, your first foray into Nashville was with Bob Dylan. Yeah, that was the first time I'd ever been there. When you were there, were there other major non-country acts who were recording in Nashville like Dylan did back in the 60s? I think he set the pace. Yeah, yeah. So what did you do? How did you spend your time once you got settled in Nashville? Well, I found a great house. Yeah. And it was only a block and a half from the recording studio that I used. Wow. So uh, I could walk to work. I love that. Yeah. It was really great. And the studio was great. The people that worked there were great. So it was a, a very good thing initially. Now... What were you working in that studio? Were you bringing your own acts, or were you hired as a producer? Everything. Everything. Okay. Yeah. In the in your book, the chapter before Nashville was a uh, crime story in L.A. and oh, L.A. then. So you went from L.A. to Nashville. Yeah. Mm. That's, That's a, quite a difference. Yeah, it is. And a distance. Yeah. But it was uh, way different. Yeah. Like I said, I could walk to work. Yeah. I really like that. Can you remember some of the specific projects that you were working on in that studio? Not at all. Really? Okay. Now, were, were, was the, were these projects that you dreamed up and you brought an act to the studio, or were they hiring you? Uh, uh, both, but I think the first record I did there was with my backup band, yeah. I did a, a, a solo album of them. Okay. Uh, for Warner Brothers. 
It's quite nice. I, I put a track on the box set from it. Huh. And I handed it in to Warner Brothers, and they never put it out. Uh, I, never, I never quite understood that. And it's all done, it's ready to go. Yeah. They put it out. Uh, I, I, I think, oh, I know what happened. Sorry. I called my backup band, Frankie and Johnny. Okay. And so I decided to call the album the Sweetheart Sampler. Uh. Frankie and Johnny were Which sweethearts. Yeah. So we, we, we took a knockoff of the uh, Whitman's Chocolate su- Sampler. Sweet, sweet, sweetheart Sampler. Yeah. I stole the title. Right. And we put it on the cover, and they shut us down. And the record company said, fuck this, and they never put it out. Oh, because they were all twisted up about the yeah. copyright of the Whitman Sampler. Yeah. But on Sweetheart of the Rodeo, the birds used something that looked like the Sweetheart Sampler. But that uh, was probably... Not, not as much as we did. Yeah. I still have it somewhere. In between getting divorced and rebuilding my life once again, somebody actually hired me to play on a country record. A man with the unlikely name of Garth Fundus called to have me play on the debut album of an artist he was producing. And uh, I knew Garth from the Sound Emporium, two blocks away, and I love studio work because of the challenge. And it was for Trisha Yearwood. The track was called Fools Like Me. It's on my box set. Okay. Cool. So... Was that the first time you actually played like on a real country record? I don't think so. Because um, people would call me because I lived there. Okay, so you had been called and played both keyboard and guitar? No, probably just keyboard. Yeah. Because Nashville has a yeah, lot of yeah, very yeah, hot guitar a players. Few, a few decent guitar players there. <laughs> John Sebastian said, Nashville Cats... Play clean as country music. Cool as country water. Yeah. Mm-mm-mm. What else about Nashville? Um, so, well, it was a, it was a kind of kickback time for me. Yeah. I didn't do that much, and if I did anything, I could walk to the studio and go home. Yeah. So it's kind of easy going. Was there a big hang? Hangout place like in in Atlanta, you had that place where you discovered the uh, Skinner. Was there a place, a particular club in Nashville? Yeah, I can't remember the name of it, but there there was a club I went to all the time. Yeah, and it'd probably be in the book, and I'd play there. Yeah, either backed up by Nashville musicians or mm. solo. Yeah. Oh. Um, one one of my best friends in Nashville was uh, Adrian Ballou. Yeah. Now he's. We talked about him. He he's, he was connected with King Crimson. King Crimson. Okay. Primarily, initially, but then he became a solo artist, and I was a very big fan of him as a solo artist. What was his instrument? Guitar. He's a great guitar player. Brilliant guitar player. Uh, 
And what was was he being a session dude in Nashville or doing his own career? I think doing his own career, but I mean, you know, I had him play on some stuff. Yeah, yeah. And and we were pretty good friends. Hmm. So uh, Dylan was going to play in Nashville. Yeah. And he had some time off. Yeah. So he, I lived in a house that was uh, between two big streets. It was I lived between the two streets. Yeah. But it was about three quarters of a mile, the block that I lived on. Oh, okay, huge. Yeah. Yeah. So Bob pulled his bus up at the longest part and then walked from his bus to my house. Mm. And we spent the afternoon... I think I had a couple of cute women there yeah. to amuse him. Yeah. And we had lunch. Yeah. And uh, and it was time to go, and um, he uh, started walking up to the bus. I said, why don't you just have him come down? He said, no, I'll walk. I said, you want me to walk with you? He said, no, I'll go myself. And I thought, this is ridiculous. Because the walk was long. Also, it's Bob Dylan, uh, kind of flashily dressed, uh, walking three quarters of a mile uh, in the middle of a residential district. Right. Yeah. But I didn't feel like making that walk, much less walking back. Yeah. So I let him go, and he went. Yeah. And I thought it was pretty funny. Bob Dylan. I tell you, I saw him about ten years ago at the one of these places, just in low, low, low auditorium. And uh, well, you know, when I grew up, Dylan was my guy. It was everybody else, but there was mainly Dylan. But my problem with that concert was I couldn't even figure out what song he was playing. <laughs> I mean, couldn't hear the words. Couldn't have, have and I thought to myself. Like he really should have good, good band, good sound system go, going on. But I could not even identify the song at any time. I mean, I went to a concert by Bare Naked Ladies at Lowell Outdoors. It was the best rock sound I ever heard in my life. And Bare Naked Ladies, I mean, they're a perfectly fine band, but they're you know, they're not. They were more attentive to the audio quality than I think that Dylan was. Or whatever no, I believe that. When you were living in Nashville, did you ever run into any of the guys who played on Blonde all on Blood? All, all the time. Okay. Charlie McCoy. Yeah. Pig Hargis. Mm-hmm. All those guys. Yeah. Did you ever... It's one of the reasons I moved there. Because you... I'm comfortable with these people. Yeah. Did you ever talk about, like, wasn't that no, crazy? No. And, it's, you know, it's... Another session, as just another far as session. we were all concerned. Right. Was that studio active on the weekends, or were weekends just off and just hanging out? No, home? studios yeah. are active 24-7. Okay. So you're as likely to be working at the studio on Saturday afternoon as you are Monday noontime. Yeah, or yeah. Um, Monday at uh, 6 a.m., 
having stayed, from Sunday, f- having stayed up all night. Yeah, yeah. Huh. Well, it was common, very common practice. Well, when the energy is good, when things are happening, you just don't want to stop. You just want to keep going as long as there's. What's the problem? Right. Right. As long as it's working, just keep it up until you drop. Yeah, yeah right. that's what we did all the time. Yeah. Which is kind of the same hours that you were recording Blonde on Blonde 30 years prior. You just oh yeah start in the afternoon and work all Well, night. I mean, I always was an insomniac from the time I was a young boy. Yeah. So, you know, I was a 24-7, like, mm. my whole life. Mm. Just my parents didn't know. Yeah. What prompted you to leave Nashville? What was going on? Enough. <laughs> One chapter is called Nashville, which is 1990 to 95, but the next chapter is called The Greening of Nashville, which is 96 to 98. Your opening sentence of this chapter is, as the years went by in Nashville, the town began to erupt and metamorphosize into something that was more akin to California than Tennessee. True. Is that part of why you left? It was just yeah. not the quieter place you wanted? Yeah. Okay. This has been Coopercast episode 89, brought to you by Insomnia. Submit questions for Al at alcooper.com on the Coopercast page.